surprise you a little bit, written as they are in Scripture. We have a tendency to get a little bit religious on ourselves and to assume that there are whole areas, bunches of topics, certain topics and a certain vocabulary that we need to steer clear of when we come to God. And we forget that what the Bible is inviting us into is instead a deep, real, brutally honest, totally vulnerable relationship with God. And here you have in these pages the pouring out of one of the most universal of human emotions and experiences, the anguish of the heart. I want to look this evening at the problem of pain, or as it's sometimes referred to, the problem of suffering probably one of the hardest problems that any of us will ever face, whether you're a Christian, an atheist, a Buddhist, Hindu, or anything else. The real lows of life, those moments where it feels that the bottom has fallen out of your world, are the greatest challenge for us to meet, both from a head and a heart perspective. And what I mean by that is both from an intellectual perspective and from the deep emotions that we experience in those dark times. And my hope is that by the end of this evening, wherever you're coming from, you'll get a feel for why I believe that although perhaps the problem of suffering is probably the greatest objection to the existence of God, God himself is paradoxically the only solution to our suffering. He is the only one who can answer both our head and our heart questions. Let me spell out the problem for you in a nutshell, although obviously when you're thinking through these issues or when you're in conversation about them, you won't be explicitly using this kind of uh, philosophical vocabulary or philosophical structure, but basically the problem goes like this. If God is all-powerful, then he can create any world that he wants. If God is all-loving or all-good, then he would want to create a world without suffering. But suffering exists. If God is all-powerful, then he can create any world he wants. If God is all-loving or all-good, then surely he would want to create a world in which there is no suffering, but suffering exists. What does this mean about God? Doesn't it mean that a God who is both all-loving and all-powerful, in other words, the God of the Bible, doesn't it mean that he does not exist? In other words, doesn't it mean that the Christian faith is false? That's the problem. Let me try and walk through some of the strands that taken together might be the beginnings of a Christian response. Firstly, the question of being all-powerful. Many people, when they think about God being all-powerful, imagine that God can do anything and everything that he wants. But I wonder if it's just a little bit more complicated than that. God being all-powerful does not include the ability to do the logically impossible. Take, for example, a square circle. If someone asks you, isn't God meant to be all-powerful? Can't he create a square circle? The answer would be no. Or probably more appropriately, more precisely, the answer would be that the question doesn't have a meaning and therefore there can be no answer. There is no such thing as a square circle. The logically impossible is not a thing. It's a contradictory and incoherent bunch of words stuck together. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain once wrote this, meaningless combinations of words do not suddenly acquire meaning simply because we prefix to them to other words, God can. 
it remains true that all things are possible with God. The intrinsic impossibilities are not things but non-entities. It is no more possible for God than for the weakest of his creatures to carry out both of two mutually exclusive alternatives, not because his power meets an obstacle, but because nonsense remains nonsense even when you talk it about God. God can do miracles. God can intervene in our lives in the most spectacular and supernatural ways. God can do what would be impossible for us, but he cannot do the logically impossible because there's actually no such thing. Now, you might be thinking at this point, probably at best at this point, well, that's kind of interesting, I guess, <laughs> but pretty random detour when we're actually wanting to think and talk about suffering. What has the logically impossible got to do with the problem of suffering? Let me take a step back and ask a related question. What would it look like for God to create a world in which we could meaningfully experience love? I want you to imagine a scene with me. Imagine there is a man and a woman. The woman is profusely crying, shuddering, tears everywhere, and stammering out the words, I love you. Does it or does it not make a difference to your reading of that situation if you see that the man has a gun in his hands held at her head telling her to say that? Does it change the scenario, the dynamic of what you think is happening, whether you think you are witnessing a meaningful expression of love. To quote my boss and my good friend Michael Ramsden, let me suggest to you that the question of love is not an issue of power. The question of love is not an issue of power. Imagine that there is a God who is love and he wants to create human beings who will know and experience his love, who will love him back and who will know the joy of loving each other. Whatever else he creates in that world, one thing is true about those human beings, they would have to be free. God did not create suffering. He did not create evil. He created us, and he created us free, free to choose for him, for one another, for ourselves, but equally free to choose against him, against one another, and even free to make decisions that harm ourselves. And although we could have chosen to do good and be good all the time, the fact is that we have chosen our, in our freedom to use our freedom instead to do evil and to cause pain. The brokenness of this world is not an abstract phenomena. It's the result of every single decision against love, against one another, and even against ourselves that we in our freedom have taken. Greg Kukul writes this, if God wiped out all the evil in the world tonight at midnight, where would you and I be at 12.01? Where would you and I be at 12? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because I think when we think about suffering, it's just a little bit too easy and too convenient to think that the problem is out there somewhere. I wonder if it rings true to you that the Bible tells us that the problem runs through every human heart. There's a brokenness inside, an evil 
inside that needs to be dealt with? Is it possible that suffering exists not because God doesn't love us enough, but in fact precisely because God is love and values love so highly and therefore made us free? I think that's part of it. Let me come at the problem of love from another angle. I think many of us, and myself included, sometimes wonder, why didn't God just stop this one thing, this one event, this one experience of suffering in the world or in our lives? Couldn't God create a world where we were free and where love was possible, real love, the meaningful expression of love was possible, but with just less suffering? Can God have just stopped this one event in my life or the life of a friend or a loved one? Not everything, not all of the suffering, not all of the evil, but just the worst bits or even just this one bit. I uh, wonder if you've seen the movie About Time by director Richard Curtis. It's this kind of wonderful uh, love story, comedy, kind of big life lessons all rolled into one. The main character of the movie is a man called Tim Lake, paid by Donald Gleason, who can travel back and forth in time and change specific things in his own life or in the life of his loved ones. And the story tracks his discovery that there are consequences to making changes that are a bit more complicated than he might have first thought, and that making his own life better or the lives of his family better or living life to the full may need a slightly different strategy. I'm going to play you a clip from the movie now, but let me just give you a little bit of context. Tim Lake has traveled back in time to change one event in his sister's life. His sister is experiencing a lot of suffering, and he realizes that the whole spiral started from one event, and if he can only go back and change just that one event, not the whole of it, not the whole of her life, not all of the decisions, just one decision, one event, then everything else will be better. He goes back effectively to solve the problem of suffering in his sister's life. He successfully alters the event, keeping everything else the same, and comes back to the present day. And you see him walking back into his home, to the present day, and to his family. And I want you to watch his reaction as he's reunited with his baby. This is a picture of his little girl, Posey. Take a good look at her. It's her character that's important in the mix. That's Posey, and this is him walking back to chat with her once he's back from his time travel. Fabulous person in the world. Come to your dad and get mashed up food shoved into your mouth. Hello there, little boy. Just wait there, and I'll be back in a minute. Dad, have a quick word. Yeah, sure. I can't go back past the birth again, can I? No, I should have mentioned that. You're okay till it comes out. But the exact sperm at the exact moment got you this particular baby, so if you do anything the tiniest bit different, you'll, you'll have a different child. So, every day up till yesterday is as it will always be. Lost. Just like for everyone else. Okay. Interesting. Tough. I love 
love you, Dad. A good friend of mine, Dr. Vince Vitale, has developed an argument. He actually did his Oxford doctorate on this topic that speaks to the emotions of that very scene. He writes, we often wish we could take some piece of suffering out of the world while keeping everything else the same, but it doesn't work that way. Changing anything changes everything, and here's the rub, and everyone, and everyone. Is it possible that we live in the world that we live in and God doesn't tweak and alter one thing and then the other in the way that we would sometimes wish because it mattered to God that it was you, that God doesn't just love any random group of human beings. Human beings aren't an abstract group to him, but he specifically loved you and me when he was creating our world. What I'm saying is that you and I aren't interchangeable in the heart of God with some other baby, however amazing that baby might have been. We are specifically chosen, specifically created human beings, the exact person that God wanted when he was creating. And this world, with all of its brokenness and the intertwining, complicated intertwining of world events, is the world in which the real you and the real me exist. So you have on the one hand that being all-powerful does not include the logically impossible. Secondly, the reality of what it might mean that God is all-loving. Thirdly, a comparison. Most people make the mistake of thinking that the problem of suffering is a problem for the Christian faith alone. And in a sense, they're right. This specific problem of an all-powerful, all-loving God is unique to the Judeo-Christian faith because it's in fact only the God of the Bible who claims to be both all-loving and all-powerful. Some people think that Islam makes a similar claim, but they're actually mistaken. It doesn't. But the reality is whether the specific problem of an all-powerful, all-good God, whether that specific problem is related only to the Christian faith or not is kind of irrelevant to the broader fact that the real problem of suffering, in other words, the actual experience and existence of suffering in our world is a problem for everyone. Everyone, regardless of background, regardless of philosophy, ideology, or faith, needs to grapple with that real, the reality, the, the real problem of suffering in our world, for the fact that we all suffer, for the fact that we often lack answers for the dark periods of our lives, for the fact that taking the, sim- the Christian God simply out of the picture doesn't change those heartfelt traumas that we go through and the questions that arise. The real problem of suffering is a problem for all. And every person on this planet has to grapple with it. One of my colleagues, Simon Everts, sums up the response of the major world religions in a nutshell. Obviously, when you're putting it in just a soundbite, you lose the nuance. But this is actually a fairly accurate insight into the religions of this world. He says, atheism says suffering is just natural. It's evolution, matter, time, and chance doing their thing. Just get on with it. It's natural. Islam, it's God's will. Submit to it. Hinduism, it's deserved, so live with it. Buddhism, it's an illusion. Ignore it. Atheism tells you suffering is natural. Just go with it. Islam, it's God's will. Suffering is God's will. Submit to it. Hinduism tells you it's deserved, so live with it. And Buddhism, it's an illusion. Ignore it. 
I don't know about you, but none of these alternatives seem to ring true to my heart, my emotions or intuitions about the experiences of suffering in the world. It seems to me that only the Christian faith really acknowledges that there is something that has gone terribly wrong in our world, that this wasn't meant to be how it is somehow that this wasn't meant to be our story, that there's something that's gone wrong right at the core, like a spreading cancer that has infected everything. And it's only the Christian faith through the cross that gives us a future hope to look to. Don't be fooled, I guess is what I'm saying, into thinking that if you just remove the Christian God out of the picture, you've solved the problem. The real problem of suffering remains. And I think that if you take God out of the picture, you continue to suffer, but with less hope and with fewer answers. Two final strands very briefly, and then I'll wrap this up and there'll be time for questions. The answer of the cross and the promise of relationship. Firstly, the cross. I've talked already about a brokenness and evil within us. God, the perfect being, gave us a moral code by which to live, and all of us have broken it, but it's a brokenness with a twist. Michael Ramsden puts it like this. Imagine one day that you decide that you will break the law of gravity. You put a giant S on your chest, you put a red cape on, you don massive red pants on outside your trousers on top of everything else that you're wearing. You race to the top of a 10-story building. You're adamant. You're about to break the law of gravity. You run. You jump. What will you break? See, this is, in a nutshell, the Christian message. We've turned our backs on God, tried to break his law, but broken ourselves instead whilst proving his law. Now we live in a broken world, and the Bible tells us this has broken the heart of God. It might be that you're sitting here and you think of God as angry, judgmental, condemnatory. Couldn't be further from the God that the Bible talks about. Throughout the Bible, God pleads with humanity, why will you break yourselves, repent, and live? I'm basically paraphrasing the whole book of Ezekiel. God says, I long for you to live. Turn to me, come to me. I will restore you and redeem you and forgive you and give you life. Come and live. I long for you to live. And it was in order to make that life, new life, full life, abundant life, the message translation puts the words in John's gospel as real and eternal life, more and better life than you ever dreamed possible. That's the invitation of Jesus. It was to make that life possible for us that we read that Jesus, God himself, knowing that we had broken ourselves and broken our world, came into the world, lived the perfect life, the life we ought to have lived. And on the night he was betrayed, he took some bread and said, this is my body broken for you, broken for you. In other words, God hasn't left us to it. He hasn't left us to it. The most famous verse in the Bible is John 3:16. This is what it says. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son. 
his one and only son. And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed by believing in him. Anyone can have a whole and lasting life, eternal life. And the next verse says, God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son in order to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. One final strand, what does this mean for us? The promise of relationship. I don't know if you're aware that one of the most repeated commands in the Bible is fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. It's so important that we remember the words in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I want you to notice that it doesn't say, though I skip on the mountaintops where there are flowers blooming, I will fear no evil. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. When God tells us, fear not, he doesn't say, because I'm going to make it all rosy for you this side of eternity. That is done. The other side of eternity is a guaranteed future with God. But this life, this life, God doesn't say, fear not, for I'm going to make it all better. He says, fear not, for I am with you. What has God promised us in suffering? He's promised us himself. When Jesus says in the gospel of John that he's come to give us life, life in all its fullness, he also tells us so profoundly and confusingly that he himself is that life. He's offering us relationship. And he tells us that if we will invite him in, if we will invite him into the brokenness of our lives, if we will invite him into the dark areas, both the pain and the moral failure, he will come and make his home in us. He promises to be with us. One day, all of the suffering will be over. There will be no more tears, no more sorrows, no more sadness. But right now, The offer is relationship, that God will walk the journey with us, that he will give us the grace and comfort to live the journey well, and that he'll fill us with an inner power that we might even act as transforming agents in the world, bringing the light into the darkness. Now, I hope you'll uh, see this talk as the kind of... um, the beginning of a conversation and not the end of one. Inevitably, when you speak for 20, 25 minutes on a problem that would really need many hundreds of hours to address, I, am, I know that there are many legitimate questions that have been left unaddressed in their entirety. This is not the final word on suffering by any means. It is the beginning of some strands of thought on the conversation. And I hope that you'll raise some of the questions that it's brought up in your minds in the Q&A that we're about to have. But I just wanted to have made that qualification that this is by no means the final word, but really the beginning of a conversation to think about these things in a different way. 
Uh, second point worth just saying as I close is that I had a very wise mentor once say to me that cancer looks very differently to an oncologist than to a young mother with three months to live. What I'm saying is that inevitably in a room this size, some of you will have come with head questions and some of you will have come with heart questions. And a talk that it's been addressed primarily more to the head end of things can feel very jarring when you're in currently a very difficult place. I just want to make the invitation to you that if you are in that place currently, there are people in this church who would love to meet with you, speak with you, pray with you. You are really welcome to contact the office or to come on a Sunday and make yourself known and get help and comfort and support in some way. Um, Finally, let me just say one last thing. This evening is part of a series of three evenings that are really um, put on designed to give you something of a taster of what it might look like to come on this course. This is the Alpha course. This is a chance to bring all of your questions, all of the things you want to ask about God, all of the opinions that you have about God, and to talk about them in a really open, friendly environment. Bring your friends, share a meal together, and just talk about the important questions of life, the meaning of life, the big questions the kind of the the deeper things of life together I would massively recommend this course I've actually been on one probably upwards of 10 times with different friends at different times and it has been a wonderful friendship building life enhancing experience every time it starts in two weeks all of the details are at the back I'd really commend the alpha course to you but that's the end of me for now talking to you in this way we're going to have a break and then I'll come back up and take questions Tanya, thank you very, very much for that. Um, it was fantastic uh, listening, to, listening to you and hearing what you've got to say. And I'm sure, speaking for all of you, we feel very challenged. Um, so on that note, um, many of you will have questions. Um, and that's why we've put some cards and pencils on the table. Why not, um, during our 10-minute break, jot down your question and then and then bring it up to Tanya's table, and uh, she'll just sift through and maybe just pick uh, three or four questions um, that she will um, uh, respond to uh, later on. So we'll have a 10-minute break, uh, grab a drink, write your question down, and uh, we'll continue. We'll probably wrap the evening up. um Okay, I think we're ready to start again. So welcome back, Tanya. (laughs) And uh, it's over to you. I've just remembered that I desperately need to go home. (laughs) Um, Thank you for the deluge of questions I have received. I'm going to make the, um, just the apology in advance that it's going to be impossible for me to answer all of them in the 25 minutes that we've got. But um, I've tried my best to begin to make sense of at least some, um, some coherence in terms of at least there were, there were multiple questions on some themes, and I'll just take a theme and address it rather than try and answer the five or six questions on that theme. So hopefully you'll feel that your questions, at least partly, were addressed through this time. 
Can I just say that if I didn't get to your question, I'm so sorry about that. Please, will you bring your question to the Alpha course, and there will be other people who would love to chat with you about it and begin to unpick it. But I'll do my best to get through as many as I can in the time that we've got. The first really easy one, I thought I'd just do the quick ones first. What literature would you recommend for reading more? There's two books that I'd particularly recommend on this. One is written by Ravi Zacharias and Vince Vitali. So Zacharias, that's Z-A-C-H-A-R-I-A-S, Ravi Zacharias and Vince Vitali, that's V-I-T-A-L-E. Ravi Zacharias and Vince Vitali, I think that book is called Why Suffering? And then Sharon Dirks, and her surname is spelled D-I-R-C-K-X, and her book is called Why. So Why Suffering and then Why um, are both uh, books that address the spectrum of head and heart kind of issues that come up with this particular question. Um, There's this question that says, you implied that God doesn't intervene to combat evil. How do you say this when Jesus repeatedly healed people and told us to ask anything in his name. Brilliant question, and thank you for clearing that up. If I implied that God doesn't combat or doesn't interfere or doesn't kind of, isn't active in our world, I definitely didn't mean to imply that. What I meant to say is that when we look on our lives and we kind of pretend to be God in our lives, we look at our lives as they really are, as they're happening to us in real time. And we begin to think, well, if I was God, I would take this out of the equation and this out of the equation. And I'd put this into the equation and we begin to reorder what our lives might look like. We don't know, obviously, to what extent God has already been intervening, working be mal- be, uh, melting and making our lives malleable in his hands and how he's been weaving the threads together. My firm belief and my experience is that God is active in the world all the time. God is active all the time in all sorts of ways, out of compassion and out of a love for the people that he's made. But the question of suffering particularly comes up when we look at an event that it looks like God hasn't interfered with and say, what doesn't interfere with that? The truth is, he may well have interfered and inter- or intervened in a way that we can't see. So, for example, an event happens that causes a tragedy and 10 people die. We don't know if God's hand intervened in such a way as to forestall a much greater tragedy of bigger proportions and of a greater loss. That we just, there are so many questions that are left unanswered in suffering. We don't know where God's hand has been in those things. So definitely, I don't mean to say that God isn't intervening, hasn't intervened. But what I'm trying to, and that it's, it's worth asking God to intervene all the time. In fact, the Bible actively encourages us to invite God into our lives in all sorts of different ways. But it remains the case that when we look at a specific event and say, God, why didn't you do X? And we have in mind a very specific form of intervening. That's the point at which we need to just be a little bit careful about, well, what would that imply in terms of the knock-on consequences? We kind of would need to know how that intervening would impact every other event in history, all of the lives that are going to be impacted for generations and millennia to come. And that's where it gets philosophically a little bit more tricky. What about natural disasters uh, was a a recurring uh, thread that came through many of the questions. I'll give you some thoughts on it, but this requires really another lecture in itself. It's a slightly different kind of part of the question of suffering. Um, One of the things that I'd say is that 
if it's all just natural, in the sense that if there is no God, there is really then no such thing as a natural disaster. There is just a natural event. To call it a disaster implies a moral element. Something has gone wrong, and we can only have that moral element or that moral framework where the person of God exists. If you take God out of the picture, you haven't fixed the problem. Now you have all of these events that kill hundreds, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people at a time. And we would simply have to call them natural events, part of the evolutionary process working itself out. And I think that leaves us uncomfortably, kind of, that doesn't seem to satisfy. Natural disasters, as we might best understand them in a Christian philosophy, have, that you could go at it in two different ways. Both of these would be compatible with Christian theology and really respected philosophers and scholars take different sides on the equation, but I'll give you two options of how you might begin to think about it. One option might be to say that natural, or to view natural disasters as not, as natural events, not as disasters in themselves. And what I mean by that is this, to say that the event itself is not evil but what has come out of it is evil, and I'll try and unpick that. What I mean is, when you have huge earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes erupting, or anything else that is nature in its, in some ways, in its most glorious, in its most kind of awe-inspiring, the event itself is not what is evil, it's the outcome of the event that is so hard to take. And some Christian thinkers and philosophers talk about how actually the events are um, part of the glory of creation. They're God-created things. They're, they're moments where we, what ideally should happen is that we should have like a front row view, just watching creation be the magnificent thing that it is. Why it's become evil for us is that we are a fallen humanity. And the Bible teaches that when we turned our backs on God, when he created us to be in relationship with him and we turned our backs on him, something was fundamentally broken in what it means to be human. God created us in perfect relationship with him, in perfect relationship with one another, in perfect relationship internally. That means free of all forms of psychological disorder and anxieties and internal tensions, and also in perfect relationship with nature. We had much more of a, a clear line of communication between us and the natural world. And the philosophy would say, look, when God created these natural events, we, in our kind of pre-broken state, we would have almost like a sixth sense that would tell us about these events, and we would have the ability to be on safe ground watching the glory of God at work. To give you a picture of this in real life, when the tsunami happened, I think it was, was that in 2005, that's just the, the, dec kind of the decades go on, one of the most kind of crazy kind of stories, the narratives that came up out of that event was that animals started running for the hills whilst humans were running to the sea. In other words, 
the animal world had something of a sixth sense that not all was well out in the water and started running for safety and got themselves out of danger whilst the humans had no inclination of what was about to happen. And it's something of that that's being envisaged in terms of there are these natural events. If we were in our pre-Bokan state, if we were still in that relationship with God and if we hadn't marred our world so much, we would be able to intuitively pick these things up and get ourselves to safety So that's one part of it. And then another part of it says, look, these are natural events, but what makes them evil is the corruption and the poverty in the world. So, for example, we have ample technology in this world that tells us when earthquakes are going to happen, where they're going to happen, what magnitude they're going to be and what we can expect as a result. But because of the economics of how these things work, firstly, some of the nations that need this technology the most don't have access to it. And secondly, even when we have access to it, like in the States, for economic reasons, we choose to build on fault lines, whereas we were not designed to do that. We were designed to build on safety, but land becomes precious. I don't know if you know that an earthquake of almost identical magnitude happened in the States and in Haiti almost at the same time. 67 people died in the States. Hundreds of thousands of people died in Haiti. The poverty-corruption differential. So, in other words, natural disasters in this philosophy says they're not disasters. They're, they're not evil in and of themselves. They're events. But the human brokenness and human evil and human corruption has turned them into disasters. A second philosophy, which is distinct to that, would say, no, these events themselves are evil. They were not part of the created order. When human beings turned their back on God, it was not just their relationship with God, not just their relationship with one another, not just their relationship internally, and not just their relationship with the world that was indelibly marred, Creation itself was broken, and all of the natural disasters that we now see are the result of that brokenness, but they did not exist in the beginning when God created. These are technical points in some way. You could go down either road. You would still be true to Christian theology and to what the Bible, the the broad brushstrokes of what the Bible says, but they lead to slightly different emphasis. There's more that could be said, but I'll leave it to try and get to some of the um, other questions. There were a lot of questions about prayer. What's the point of praying? What prayer, what power does prayer have? Is prayer important still? Do we even want God to intervene if you're saying that him intervening changes things? And what does this all look like? Um, I'm going to do a kind of a, a a kind of slightly embarrassing plug for myself and say that I have done an hour's talk on this. It's available online. I'm afraid you'll have to buy it. It's not available free. I think it's three or four pounds. I did it at New Wine this year. And I think if you Google Tanya Walker and prayer, or I can't remember what the talk was called, maybe the power of prayer or something like that, you will hear my, my, a kind of a fuller appreciation of some of these thoughts. But let me give you some of a nutshell of them. I think one of the things that I think about when I think about prayer is that we have quite a simplistic attitude to prayer in that we think, I pray for X. If X happens, then my prayer has worked. If X does not happen, then my prayer hasn't worked. And so we kind of think that that's the kind of... the, the kind of the spectrum of the possible responses. It works or it doesn't work. And it works if God says yes to me 
and it hasn't worked if God says no to me. And I'm just wondering if it's a little bit more complicated than that. I think you don't need to live very long. I definitely learned this lesson sooner than I would have liked to have learned it in my life, where you realize that there are some things you desperately want in the moment, and you might even spend many hours on your knees begging and pleading with God to bring about a certain event, and God says, no, heaven shuts the door on it, and you're left reeling, and you're left asking all sorts of questions about God, possibly in a very dark place, and I don't think that it takes very long sometimes, even weeks, months, years down the line, before you begin to thank God that he did not answer your prayer. In my early 20s, I was engaged to a man. He broke up with me. Uh, I'm now married to the wonderful Toby Walker. He features in every single talk. Um, at that stage, engaged to a, a different man, he broke up with me literally weeks ago to the wedding day. I was completely devastated. Five months after the event, there really has literally not been a day where if someone has reminded me of that event or for whatever reason that event has come up, that I haven't thanked God that he rescued me from what was actually a very damaging relationship. I just didn't quite see it in my 21-year-old state. And I prayed a lot about that relationship, longed for that relationship, wanted that wedding day. I was completely distraught that it went, that it didn't happen. And yet now I spend so many days thanking God. Thank you, God, you rescued me. Thank you, God, you rescued me. What does it mean for prayer to work? I think we human beings are not the best judge in the moment of what would necessarily be good for us or bad for us. You would really need to have the mind of God in order to know, in order to accurately say what that event in your life, what its moral fiber was, whether it was good for you or bad for you, because you would need to know how that one event connected with every other event in your past and in your future, and how it connects with everyone else's past and future too, in order to be accurately able to assess, is this good or bad? So firstly, there's that ambiguity. What does it mean for prayer to work? I think it's Suis, no, it's Pascal who says that through prayer, God gives us the dignity of causality. God gives us the dignity of causality. P prayer really does have a power, but then C.S. Lewis commenting on that says, it's not that prayer is not powerful enough. It is that it's too powerful a tool for God to give us prayer as an entirely kind of slot machine type power in its entirety because it works across time and space and through generations with no hindrance. And so actually, it's God's grace to us and God's mercy to us that he gives us the dignity of causality. He gives us something of the mystery of power in prayer, but in his mercy and in his grace, in his foresight, in his wisdom, he puts some boundaries on what, that prayer, what the power of that prayer is. So it's not that prayer is kind of ineffectual, weak, non-important. It's so powerful, so potent, so dangerous that God puts some boundaries in his grace and what it can possibly achieve. And he steps in and says, actually, this time I'm going to say no. Those are just some very basic thoughts. Let me hinge that together by saying, this is where trusting the person at the center of the story is completely pivotal to every answer that the Christian faith or any faith really could give you. 
Only the Christian faith can give you the answer I'm about to give you because only the Christian faith makes this claim or this invitation. But really, I believe that every question about suffering and every question about our role in the world and prayer particularly can only ultimately be answered in knowing the person at the center of the story and only the Christian faith makes the claim that you can. The Christian faith says that you in your limited, human, fallible self can truly know God. It's an unbelievable claim, really. It's a completely unique claim. Only the Christian faith makes this claim. You really can know God. Not, not everything about him, not his entirety, not inside out, but you really can have a deep, meaningful relationship with God. Imagine if someone said to me, Toby is a lawyer, look, um, there's this case going on and such and such has happened and you know, this is going to happen. Uh, what do you think the outcome of the case will be? It's completely legitimate for me, a non-lawyer, to say, look, I don't understand all the details of what you've explained. I don't really understand all of the details of the legislation that would apply. But I really know Toby. And so I can really confidently say to you, I don't understand all the details. I can't tell you what the outcome will be. But I can tell you one thing. As far as it depends on Toby, it will be good and true and just. It's not the bypassing of my brain. This is not some kind of emotional response to the intellectual question. This is a rational response to say, I don't understand all of the intricacies of the law. I don't understand all of the intricacies of the situation. But I understand what I know about Toby, and it will be good and true and just. That's the kind of thing that the Christian faith is inviting us into. To say, it's an Oskinis quote, actually. It's one of my favorites. We may be in the dark about what God is doing at times. We may be in the dark about what God is doing. We're not in the dark about God. It's actually staggeringly profound. We're not in the dark about God. So when we come to prayer and when we come to ask questions about suffering, there are all sorts of things where you would literally need to have the mind of God in order to be able to see how they all fit together. So you might be in the dark about some things and their outcome and why some things don't happen and some things do, and you pray for one thing, it happens. You pray for another thing, seemingly similar situation, it doesn't happen. We may be in the dark about what God is doing. Not always, sometimes. But we're not in the dark about God. And that's ultimately, for me, been the thing that's been life-giving. Is to remember, I know God at the center of the story. I understand why I trust him. It's not just a blind trust. It's not a blind faith. I understand how I've come to the conclusion that he is trustworthy. And so I'll trust him even when I don't understand. There is one... uh, I think the question really that stood out to me most this evening, I'm sorry, I obviously can't remember who gave it to me or if it, even if it was handed to me. Um, I have been praying for my son with learning difficulties for 39 years. He remains the same. Should I stop praying for God to heal him? I hope I've addressed some of this out of all of the questions on prayer. I guess I'd just add that, no, don't stop praying. For as far as you feel able, for as far as your heart can handle it, God invites us to bring everything to him. There's no, I read that psalm in the beginning, hoping to dispel the myth that there are some emotions that are too ugly for God, some anger, disappointment, resentment, bitterness that's too much for God to handle. You can bring your resentment, bitterness, disappointment, anger, everything else to God and say, God, I'm, I'm really fed up now with this situation. I found that in my life, 
the times where I've needed God the most, sometimes my resentment or bitterness or disappointment or just sheer exhaustion means that I move away from the person who could actually comfort me. And so my only encouragement to you would be, even though, like I said in the beginning, even though the problem of suffering can be seem like the greatest objection against God, paradoxically, God is the only solution to that suffering. And so just cling to him. And if you would like to talk some more or pray with somebody or just have some comfort and some rest, some encouragement, I'm sure there are people in this church who would love to meet with you and talk with you. I'm sorry, that's such a short and glib seemingly answer to what I know would be a lifetime of a lot of time just saying, God, why? But that's the best I can do. We're five past nine. There there are a lot more questions. I think I'm going to... Maybe I'll call it a day right now and say that I will leave these questions here in this church. Please come to the Alpha course. Pick up your question if you'd like. Bring it back to the Alpha course and say, I didn't have my question answered. I feel shortchanged. I demand that my question be answered. And someone from this church I I know would love to speak with you. I can't, can't encourage you enough to come to the Alpha course. I'll just say one last thing. Thank you so much for engaging this evening. It's been so lovely to get to share some thoughts. Um, Unfortunately, I'm going to be a little bit diva-ish about this. I've developed an issue with my voice, which means that um, I struggle to basically speak above any form of background noise. It's fine once I'm mic'd and everyone else is quiet. It doesn't work if there's noise in the background. So I'm going to slip away and not actually stop and chat, which I would usually have loved to do. But thank you so much for giving me your attention. I hope you will come to the Alpha course and have more of these discussions. And it's been a real pleasure to be with you. So thank you for this evening. Tanya, thank you very, very much. Um, for your time. We really, really appreciate it. So as Tanya says, um, do think about the Alpha Course, or maybe you know someone who would uh, really benefit from coming along. Um, Maybe they're searching. Maybe they've come to a point in their life. um, They've got a lot of questions. And um, the Alpha Course is a wonderful place. We we hold the meetings up in the the evening, sorry, up in the um, coffee lounge. We have we kick off um, with a wonderful dinner. Um, someone gives a talk. Uh, we then get have coffee and pudding, and we get into our groups and we have discussion. It's very relaxed. It's non-judgmental. Um, you can come along and field your questions and be heard. And um, it's a seven-week course. I've I've done about fifty of these courses. Every time. Um, I've, I've felt uh, completely uh, uplifted. You know, I always walk, walk out uh, with a smile. Um, they're very friendly. They're a lot of fun. Um, so I definitely encourage you to come along. Anyway, that's enough from me. Um, we're going to end the evening there. Um, thank you so much for coming. Next week, we'll be here at the same time for our very last uh, session. Has science disproved? God. And someone from Ravi Zachariah will be traveling down from Oxford uh, to speak to us. So do come again, do bring a friend, and uh, see you then. Good night. Hearts grow into hearts and tell. 
Grow into hearts until the hearts become one. But you're 